Bree, but it's great having you here with so many here today. Uh, let me lead us in a quick prayer as we get underway and think about God's Word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great opportunities to gather together in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray you would give us understanding of your Word that we might know you better, love you more, and serve you with all the strength you work in us by your Spirit. Amen. In Exodus chapters 19 and 20, the one true living God appears to his people Israel at Mount Sinai. He's brought them out of slavery in Egypt, brings them to Mount Sinai, and he says, come up to the mountain where I will meet with you. And, and the one true living God appears to his chosen people, the nation of Israel. Cloud comes down on the mountain, there's thunder, there's lightning, there's the sound of these trumpets. And the people's response is, Moses, you speak to the, the Lord, the God, and then you tell us what he says, but don't let God speak to us again or we will die. They have the opportunity to meet with God in person and they say, please don't let us have that opportunity because if we do, we fear we might die. In Ezekiel, when the prophet Ezekiel gets a vision of the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God, like it's a pretty sort of almost removed from the Lord in and of himself, it's the appearance of just the likeness of the glory of God. What happens to Ezekiel when he has that vision? He, he falls down on his face. It's the only thing he can do is make himself as, like, to disappear as effectively as he can into the ground. When Moses, in his great boldness, and it's a pretty gutsy move, says to, says to the one true living God, I want to behold your glory. God says, okay, well, I'm going to hide you in this cleft in the rock, cover you with my hand hand, so to speak, and I'll allow you to see my back because no one can see my face and live. And so when Isaiah here has a vision of God, his response is, I'm cactus. I'm about to die. That's his response. I think it's incredible, actually, that these days you'll still meet people who'll say, if only God would show himself to me, then I'd believe. Like, if God just appeared, you know, then I'd, then I'd believe. I'm thinking, man, if God appeared to you, would you live to tell the tale? Like, it may be the very last thing you ever experience. I don't know if you've ever been at the point of it where you've actually feared for your life. Uh, it's happened to me, and once it happened to me three times in a three-hour period where I genuinely believed I was going to perish. I, I actually thought, I can't believe this is death. Uh, I was catching a taxi. <laughs> I was catching a taxi in India. I was catching a taxi in India where we were, we were going from the plains to a place where I was living, which was 2,500 metres in elevation. And to get there, we went up this road that had in excess of 30 hairpin bends. Right? This is a mountain road. I'm in a taxi. We'd just arrived in India the day before. This was my first sort of experience of Indian roads. I'd, I'd had 24 hours of Indian rail travel, and I was pretty shaking by that experience. Anyway, I got into a taxi because uh, uh, someone said, oh, we're catching it. I jumped in, jumped in the front seat because I'm an Australian. That's what you do. Reached for the uh, seatbelt. And, of course, there is no seatbelt, right, because ta taxis don't have seatbelts in India. I thought, oh, that's a cool, I'm culturally savvy, I can cope with that, I'll be relaxed. 
you know. Uh, and off we took. My wife was sitting in the back with, with another person and uh, they were talking the whole way. I don't think they had my experience. But there were three times in that 90 kilometre journey, 90 k's, it took three hours to get there up this winding mountain road, three times where the taxi driver decided he was sick of sitting behind these buses and trucks and decided he would overtake. Uh, and the best place to overtake is where you get a good inside run, that is you do it on a bend, right, where you can, they're going up and you just go around on the, except that there's only one lane each way and three times he did this where there was a truck coming down that he didn't see until we were halfway around the bend. And I said, I've done university physics. I know that there is zero way we can actually fit back into that space. I can't believe I've arrived in India and I'm about to die. I can't believe it. And it happened three times. I was so traumatised by the experience that night I decided to keep a journal of our... We were spending a year in India. I decided that night to keep a journal and I wrote for five pages about our three-hour car journey. <laughs> That was my therapy, get it all out of my system. <laughs> but when you think you're about to die in all seriousness, I tell you what, your muscles tense, your heart is pounding, a lump rose in my throat the size of an orange, what hair I had was standing upright. <laughs> it was truly terrifying. And that's what Isaiah felt when he met God. I'm about to die. Why did Isaiah feel that? What made him so terrified? Well, I hope you've brought your Bible along with you, or maybe you can share with the person next to you. Isaiah 6 would be really helpful to open up and have a look at it now, after Isabel's brought us that text. Let's have a, let's have a bit of a think here. Why was Isaiah so terrified? I mean, you get from the vision that God, is, the one true living God is big, right? Because the hem of his robe, right, just the edge, the edge of the Lord's robe, just the hem fills the whole temple complex, right? So he's a big dude, so to speak, right? He's big, but that's not what terrifies him. There's smoke, the whole building, the pivots on the thresholds, they're shaking the whole place. That's not what scares him. What scares him? What scares him is what the seraphs, these sort of angelic sort of beings, these heavenly beings, it's what they're saying about this one true living God. What they're saying is, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And that scares the living daylights out of Isaiah. Why? What, what, what is it about this holiness? What, what's this holiness thing? Well, I think what he realised here is, he realised the uncompromising holiness of the one true living God. Uh, in English, I know many of you have studied, uh, studied grammar over the years. Not. Anyway, <laughs> let me tell you, that in, in English, um, I'll throw some technical grammar at you. Um, we can say something is great. We can say something is greater. Technically, that's called a comparative, right? If you're comparing things, that's a comparative. It's greater. And then you can have the superlative, which is greatest. That is, it is there is nothing greater. It is the top of the pile, right? That's the superlative. So you've learned so much already, right? <laughs> anyway, in Hebrew, in the Hebrew language, if you want to make a superlative, say something is the top, you repeat the quality. So you'd say, great, great. That means the superlative. That means the top. Notice what Isaiah does here. He, he's, um, 
He's no sort of real stickler for grammar. He's inventing grammar here. Because you're reading it in Hebrew, you go, holy, holy, holy. Hang on, what's a third holy doing there, man? You're only, if you say two holies, you've gone superlative. He's the most holiest there is. And he said, holy, holy, holy. He's created the super superlative. To just say, this is, this is beyond the holiest, which doesn't even make sense, right? But he's saying, so holy. Is this God? In fact, if you look through the Old Testament and look for all the adjectives that are ever used to describe the one true living God, the word that is used most often is holy. In fact, holy is used more often than all the other adjectives together. You are, you are here now, you are at something at the very heart of who the one true living God is. He is holy. What sort of holiness are we talking about? Well, you, can get it, you get it actually from Isaiah's response. What's Isaiah's response there? He says it there in verse 5. He says, Woe is me, for I am lost. And then he gives a reason. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. God's holiness, you see, he has a moral quality to it. Part of God's holiness is this moral quality Isaiah realizes his problem is his uncleanness, that is his lack of moral holiness. His sin is the biblical word for it. His failure to live God's way in the world. That's his problem. And moral holiness is a basic sort of requirement that the Lord has for his people. Uh, you can get it there, you might like to jot the reference down. Leviticus 11.45, Leviticus 11.45 says this, uh, the Lord speaking to his people, he says, For I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall be holy, for I am holy. It's a basic requirement that the Lord God has for his people. You shall be holy, be holy, because I am holy. And so Isaiah knows that because of his personal unholiness, his lack of moral holiness, and he knows because of God's uncompromising holiness, he knows he's a dead man. He is in mortal danger because of his lack of moral holiness in the presence of the Holy God. Now, I don't know if you, uh, you call yourself a Christian person or not, or you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, but is this your God? A God of uncompromising holiness? Uh, it's remarkable to me that... Um, uh, sometimes people play off the God of the Old Testament versus the God of the New. Uh, there's a, I went through a phase a couple of years ago where I was a bit of a West Wing fan. Uh, it's a phase. You grow out of it eventually. Um, though some people seem perpetually stuck there. Anyway, uh, there is a particular episode of the West Wing where President Bartlett is sitting in the depths, down in the depths of the White House with a political opponent and over numerous buckets of ice cream and they just sort of they just play this scene where they just can keep going to the fridge and pulling out yet another whole tub of another flavor of ice cream and they just got to lay it out between while they're eating this ice cream they're talking about religion in fact they're talking about christianity and the the political opponent is saying well you know um i once was received this fantastic old old edition of the bible and it was beautiful and i, I thought this is fantastic until i started to read it and I, I just couldn't come at this God of the Old Testament. I just did so, I couldn't handle him. And President Bartlett says, oh yes, well I'm more of a New Testament man myself. As though you can play off the God of the Old Testament to the God of the New. Let me just say, that is utter nonsense. God doesn't change in his character. 
It's not like God went through a personality change when Jesus of Nazareth arrived. God is who he is. And he will be who he is. From everlasting to everlasting, our God in character and passion is unchanging. And you can see that if you actually read the New Testament, because you'll see lots of echoes of this same truth. I'll try and throw a few things up here for you. Let's try and get some more helpful lighting for you. Here's some verses from the New Testament to that end. For indeed, writes the writer to the Hebrews, for indeed our God is a consuming fire. Why don't you imagine for a moment that someone says, you know, I love the sun. I love the sun. I want to experience the sun in its full force. You're going, yeah, yeah, whatever. He says, it's not enough to sunbake. No, I want to, I want to go there. I want to I wanna feel the flames. And you're, and you're going, man, you're, you're an idiot. You're a complete idiot. And yet, how often have you heard people say, oh, I want to I feel God, man. I want to experience God. Why doesn't God show it? Our God is a consuming fire. This is who our God is. It's not the only... Um, place I could take you to, 1 Timothy 6, Paul says, talking of God, he is, it is he alone who has immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honour and eternal dominion. Amen. Or again, back to the right of the Hebrews, this time in Hebrews 10, he says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is who our God is. You might say, well, come on, what about Jesus? I mean, Jesus doesn't seem that scary to me, you know. He was a dude, he walked around. Oh, that's, surely that's okay. Well, maybe you should just go and have a look at Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, the Apostle John is given a vision of the living Jesus in his resurrected and unrestrained glory. And when the Apostle John sees the risen Jesus in his resurrected and unrestrained glory, you know what the Apostle John, his response is? Revelation chapter 1 verse 17. He says, I fell on my face as though dead. Familiar? Like Isaiah, like Ezekiel, like anyone who has met the Lord in his glory. This is who Jesus is in his unrestrained resurrected glory. So don't, don't, domestic, don't domesticate God. Don't make God less than he truly is. Because God is, the one true living God, is uncompromising in his holiness. However, the really um, astounding thing in uh, this particular passage, Isaiah 6, is what happens next to Isaiah. Because instead of perishing, which is what he thought was going to happen, he is the recipient instead of God's uncompromising mercy. Have a look there, if you've got Isaiah 6 open to verse 6 and 7. He says there, Then one of the seraphs flew to me, holding a live coal that had been taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. 
I don't know what Isaiah thought was going to happen at this point, but I imagine he was still pretty scared. Verse 7, the seraph touched my mouth with it and said, now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed and your sin is blotted out. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that one of the most amazing things that you've ever read in your life? Or are you so familiar with God's forgiveness and mercy that that just sort of somehow washes you by you without sort of gripping you? It's, it's wonderful. Though a man, Isaiah just said, verse 5, I'm a man of unclean lips, woe is me. And at his very point of need, his unclean lips, where does the forgiveness, the atonement come? They come and they're sent to touch his very lips. At his very point of uncleanness, at his very point of need, that is where God meets him and deals with him. And suddenly, as a result of this, this, this work of God, he is guilt-free and he is sin-clean. A thorough transformation. Three quick things to notice about this uh, act of God. First of all, it is an act of God. It's God who makes provision. What does Isaiah do here about his guilt and his sin? All he does is confess it, acknowledge it, acknowledge his need. He, he does nothing else. He can do nothing else. It's actually God who does everything for it. So if you're trying to work away at your own guilt and sin, if you're trying to get rid of all that stuff, it's not going to wash. You, you can't get rid of it yourself. You need God actually to take action. And he has taken action in his son, the Lord Jesus. And it is he who makes atonement. He who makes provision. He who applies it into your life such that you can be guilt-free and sin-clean. Second thing to notice here, God's cleansing is thoroughgoing. Isaiah is utterly cleansed. There's no more record of his sin and guilt. Uh, it's interesting, I think uh, often if you call yourself a Christian, we know that we're forgiven by God because we come to him in repentance and confession and he showers mercy upon us. We know we're forgiven, but often I think we feel like I'm forgiven, yes, but my guilt is somehow still there. It's like I've been to jail, I've served my time, I've been set free, but I've still got a record. That's not how it is. It's not that you've served your time. It's that you've been absolved. You've been acquitted. You've actually been declared not guilty. You've been justified. You've been reconciled. You've been redeemed. You've been vindicated. That's what's happened to you in God's uncompromising mercy to you. There is no record anymore. So let me say, if you've come to Christ in, in repentance and you're still be beating yourself up about those sins that you've actually brought to him already, stop it. <laughs> Just you don't need to be doing that because you are guilt-free. Now I know that sometimes there are, there are wounds. Sometimes when we sin, it, it has an impact on so many ways, so many levels. You may live with some of the consequences of your actions, yes. But in the eyes of the one true living God, you are guilt-free in Christ. You are sin-clean. That is his uncompromising mercy to you. third quick thing to note here is this. 
God's mercy is actually a part, it, it's, it's, it's intrinsic to his holiness. What I mean is this. Um, we often fall into the trap of playing off God's holiness. We play that against his mercy. It's like, God's holy. Oh, that's scary. Oh, thank goodness he's merciful. We play them off against each other. I, I think that's a mistake. Actually, God's mercy is part of his holiness. I'll explain what I mean. You notice, what is, the, what is the first thing this holy, holy, holy God does? The very first thing he does is show mercy. It's actually intrinsic to his holiness. The word holy it comes from a word just just means to separate, to distinguish, to set apart. So when we say God is holy, 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 we mean he is so completely different to everything else that is. And one of the ways that he's different to everything else he is is in the extent of the mercy he shows. God's uncompromising mercy to us actually sets him apart. That is part of his very holiness. It's part of the wonder of who he is. Uh, one Christian thinker put it this way. Can you see that up the back? I found this helpful. The holiness of God, he writes, is not to be identified simply as that which distances God from us. Rather, God is holy precisely as the one who in majesty and freedom and sovereign power bends down to us in mercy. That is the nature of the one true living God. He's uncompromising in his holiness and that means he is uncompromising in his mercy towards us. That's who this God is. Uh, last week I likened the book of Isaiah to um, a wonderful mountain range. And I'm a complete sucker for mountain ranges, so I'm going to make sure you can see this picture. Um, guess, guess what country it's in? I can't hear a single word you're saying. Anyway, um, that doesn't matter. <laughs> Scotland! Yeah, 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 I know, I thought that too. Well, there you go. I'm suddenly impressed with Scotland. Um, LAUGHTER uh, I liken the book of Isaiah to a much-neglected Christian mountain range. Just Christians often don't go wandering through the book of Isaiah, which is a great shame, and that's why we're doing it here in the EU this year. Uh, rather, what we tend to do is what people do if they want to climb Everest. So you know to get to Everest Base Camp, it's actually a three-week walk. If you want to just get to Base Camp, that's a three-week trek. Now, these days, people can't be bothered to do that. So they just fly in. <laughs> And then they climb up the peak they know, Everest, down, fly again. They just drop in, drop out. And that's, that tends to be what Christians do with the book of Isaiah, right? And Isaiah 6 is a bit like an Everest mountain, right? It's, a, it's one of those passages that people are pretty familiar with. We fly and we look at it. So I just thought it's worth, though, actually pointing out, even though it's terribly well known, don't let this passage just wash by you. Actually take it in. Actually notice what's here. This is who your God is. If I could write some words up here, I would write, what are you looking at? God's uncompromising holiness, which means God's uncompromising mercy to you. That's what we're looking at. Well, it's interesting to see then how um, Isaiah responds to this. How does he respond? You'll see it there in verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, after he's been cleansed, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? 
And Isaiah said, here I am, send me. Literally, he says, behold me. Look at me, which is really interesting, right? Because what's just happened before, verse 5, his response was, I've seen the Lord. I'm now a dead man. But now he's going, look at me, God. Look at me. Send me. I'll go. He's breaking the cardinal rule of volunteering, right? God just said, who can we send? Who will go for us? You don't know actually what they've got to do. But he goes, oh, yeah, I'll go. No worries. How come he's so zealous? How come he's just so full of zeal? What's moved him from utter fear to zeal? An experience of God's mercy. That's what's moved him from fear to zeal is an experience of the transforming mercy of God. That's what's moved him. And so he says, I don't know what you want need, but if you need someone to go, I'll go, man. Look at me. I'll send me. Because he's experienced the uncompromising mercy of God in his life. Um, now, we're going to get to in a moment uh, what God actually sends him to do, and you'll see Isaiah's a bit shocked by what he's actually sent to do, but nevertheless, he's full of zeal when it comes to volunteering. And I think Isaiah's example here actually sh- is a bit of a God shining a torch, if you like, on what sometimes our complacency regarding serving God You've got Isaiah's example of zeal for God. Look at me, send me God. And yet, doesn't that sort of shine a light on us? We are sometimes a bit complacent, isn't it, when it comes to being zealous? And I wonder if part of the reason that we're a bit complacent is because we've actually lost sight of the very things Isaiah experienced. That is, we've lost sight of God's holiness. We've lost sight of God's mercy And because those things have faded a bit for us, therefore we're not as zealous. Do you know what I mean? I'll give you two more Alpine stories as an example. Uh, Kaz Andrews, who's one of the senior staff here, was telling me that when she was on sabbatical, second half of last year, she was in Switzerland, travelling with some friends, and the first time they saw a magnificent Swiss Alpine sort of mountain, it was through a train window, and they're suddenly at the window with their cameras like, look at that, wow, all through a train window, you know, so desperate. But yet after they'd been there for a couple of weeks or days or whatever, they'd seen so many mountains. Who was taking pictures? I mean, just, oh, look, another mountain range, another, yeah, another. It just, do you know what I mean? The familiarity breeds not contempt, but maybe indifference. And we're a bit like that with God. We're, yeah, God's holy, yeah. Yeah, but God's merciful to us. It just, it just sort of all fades a bit for us. And therefore, zeal doesn't come round, or it fades too. Or another example was um, my wife and I were fortunate enough to spend some time in Nepal uh, while we were spending a year in India. And um, uh, a small tip for you. If you're travelling to Nepal to see the Himalayas, don't go in the monsoon. It's cheap, true. You just can't see any mountains. Um, So we were there for about three or four weeks, and we literally saw mountains on three occasions. When the clouds just momentarily, miraculously part, you go, oh, wow, look at that, that's amazing. And one of those occasions was as we were actually coming out of Kathmandu for the final time on our way to the border, coming out and coming up out of the valley, down, we were in a bus again, and suddenly the clouds parted and you saw these, and they are incredible. You just went, oh my goodness, look, they're that high. I had no idea how high they are. 
and we're at the side of the bus, you know, through the window, taking photos. And one of our mates who was with us, Australian from Victoria, Mark, he's like, oh, yeah, great, we're all taking photos. This is a great opportunity. Anyway, uh, a little while later, and you know, this dates the story, when we got our prints back, <laughs> because it's pretty digital. Anyway, um, we got our prints back, and Mark's sitting there in the, um, and, and he's looking at his face going, that's amazing. And I said, what? He said, look, there's mountains with snow on them. We go, what? What are you talking about? And so Mark's problem was he was actually short-sighted, but he refused to wear glasses. And so he, he thought we were being excited about the green hills. And we're taking, oh, yeah, okay. He completely missed it until the photo came back. See, part of our problem sometimes is we just don't lift our eyes to see the reality of who God is. We have this low view of God. Man, he's up there. Like, he's uncompromising in his holiness, uncompromising in his mercy. And when you grasp that, you start to be uncompromising in your zeal. Now, I don't know if you uh, think about what Isaiah says here where he says, oh, you know, like, um, behold me. Look, send me, Lord. You think, well, that, I'm never going to do that, right? I'm just never going to be that zealous for God. I've, I've got so many questions. I just don't feel that passion. If that's you, I want to say, Maybe you should actually take some time to reflect on what God or who God reveals himself to be in a passage like this. Maybe you should stop to reflect on it. But I think grasping this will help you in your response to God. And maybe, uh, or maybe you're a Christian person and you're just feeling a bit burnt out at the moment. Uh, maybe just because you're doing heaps and heaps of um, ministry at church or here in the EU, we've had a massive sort of three or four weeks where we've just all been working away so hard and just, you know, there's endless smell of sausages all through your clothes and you've got 50 people you've got a ring by yesterday and it's just, and you're just going, man, zeal, zeal, I'm flagging. I'm flagging. I say, yep, I understand. The solution, I think, is actually come back and understand who your God is. Not just in his uncompromising holiness, but in his uncompromising mercy to you. Feel that again. Know that again. And follow Isaiah here. Be zealous for him who saved you. Uh, one, one Christian commentator on this uh, summed it up really well. He, he said, uh, Isaiah is a man with a big vision of God, a deep awareness of his own sin, a transforming experience of God's mercy and a willingness to spend and be spent in the service of God. And he finishes by saying, may God help us to be more like him. I reckon that's right. And we could sort of stop there. That would sort of be a good place to sort of end, wouldn't it? There's just a bit of a problem with that. I said last week, foolishly, I know, and I'm watching the clock, right? So I've absolutely got to finish in three minutes, okay? <laughs> Do me a deal. Three, cut me three minutes. Okay. There's a bit of a problem. I'll just let you in on my problem. I said last week that if you, if you can walk out of any talk on any part of the Old Testament, and particularly Isaiah, without a clearer understanding of Jesus, then I've really stuffed up. Because we don't just want to fly in and walk up Isaiah 6 and down again and fly out again. Because we actually... We know that Isaiah comes within a mountain range of the whole of the scriptures. And I'll tell you why this 
chapter of the Bible is crucial to understand Jesus better. It's because several times Jesus goes back to Isaiah 6 to explain his own ministry. In particular, it comes in the uncompromising judgment section. Because what Isaiah is told is, you'll need to go with a message to God, to my own people, and you need to tell them that the time is up, there is no more time for repentance, judgment is now inevitable. There's no escape. It's an uncompr- a message of uncompromising uncompr- judgment. Jesus, in Matthew, Mark and Luke, when people say to him, why do you speak in parables? Jesus says, oh, well, because it's a good pedagogical sort of tool, right? You tell little stories and it gets people interested and keeps like illustration. Now, what he says is, okay, you know Isaiah 6? You know how Isaiah sent with a message of uncompromising judgment on God's people? Well, I'm appropriating that, says Jesus, to my ministry from God in the here and now amongst national Israel in the first century. They have rejected God so often and so fully and for so long that God said there's no more time for repentance. So actually, I've been given Isaiah's commission. Make their ears blocked, blind their eyes so they can't turn and be healed. And so I'm speaking in parables so they don't understand God's message. It's a message of uncompromising judgment. That's what, that's what Jesus came with to national Israel. God was saying there is no more future at all for national Israel. And yes, that does affect what we view the state of Israel today. However, that is not the only place that's used in the New Testament. If you go to the Apostle Paul, right at the end of Acts chapter 28, you'll see there national Israel, the Jews, are rejecting this message of Jesus. And Paul cites Isaiah 6 and he says, yes, God said it would be this way, but you know what? The door has been opened now, consequently, for every other nation. So yes, it was uncompromising judgment on national Israel, but the door had been opened now for people of every nation, Jew and Gentile, through faith in Jesus, to come into the people of God. And Jesus and Paul and John, the apostle, they all psych back to Isaiah 6 as the key to understand Jesus' ministry in, the here, in, in his own historical setting. So, I thought I'd better share that with you. Um, we need to end. What are we going to walk away with today? This. The one true living God is uncompromising in his holiness. Don't take him for granted. He's uncompromising in his mercy to you in the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't neglect that. Let those two things motivate you with uncompromising zeal for him. And we remember that whilst God, there was uncompromising judgment on the people of God, national Israel in that time, we can give thanks to God that he has opened the door now to life eternal for all people through actually his son taking that judgment for us. Okay, look forward to seeing you next week. Please join us for afternoon tea, which is out that way.